Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Jordan Gardner, an American who's been the chairman of the board and a co-owner for the last year and a half of Denmark's FC Helsingor, which won promotion to the Danish top flight over the weekend. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Andreas Kantor, and Sarah Gordon, among many others. So check those out if you can. And it would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us. We'll have Jordan Gardner on soon, but let's take a few minutes to talk soccer news with my friend Daryl Grove of our partner, The Total Soccer Show. Daryl, how are you? I'm great. I'm drowning in soccer. I am too, man. And quadruple headers... (laughs) For the last two days of the Premier League, not to mention plenty of other leagues uh, going on, it's a lot. It is, but it's better than none, right? Because that's, yes. that's what we used to have. So <laughs> I, I I feel like I started this off by complaining and I immediately want to retract it. I don't want to be complaining. I enjoy drowning in soccer. It's, it's the way I want to go. <laughs> if you're going to go, might as well go this way. Yeah. Uh, and I am enjoying it. There's a lot to talk about, so let's dive right in. I'm going to start this week with soccer in the United States, okay. not in Europe. We'll get to Europe later here. Uh, Wednesday night is supposed to be the start of the MLS is back tournament with a double header from the bubble in Orlando. You've got Orlando, Miami to kick things off and maybe Nashville, Chicago, <laughs> based on uh, what we're learning today from our friends at The Athletic, uh, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stasekel. Uh, reporting that Nashville has some cases that uh, are positive that have been detected upon entering the bubble. And if they're going to try and play a game on Wednesday night, I think that could be a challenge. They may have to reschedule. They've already had to reschedule Dallas. Um, how are you feeling about this tournament right now? I'm feeling nervous. I The bubble doesn't feel really like a sealed bubble, right? I think it feels like the bubble has some holes in it. Um, and, and I'm also apprehensive about watching, given the evidence we're seeing on social media, that maybe some players don't want to be there, right? And we we could have guessed that that was going to be the case because, you know, people don't like to be told you have to go and um, live in this complex for multiple weeks and be away from your family. But I think the fact that multiple players are at least willing to speak out about it on social media suggests that there's like, you know, a real basically lack of enthusiasm from some of the players that are there. And I do not blame them at all. Yeah. CJ Sapong in particular, uh, with a tweet basically saying he doesn't feel safe. Yeah. And, and so that's obviously concerning guys like Matt Lampson who have pre-existing conditions tweeting that they're very concerned. Uh, Omar Gonzalez has tweeted a few things about just, uh, the conditions down there in terms of food and facilities. He tweeted the driest sandwich I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and it is it is concerning. It, it's also interesting to me that it's not the actual official Players Association, the Players Union that's tweeting this stuff. Yeah. And Bob Foose, their executive director, is down on site there. And so, you know, like I've talked about this with my wife, who's an infectious disease doctor, And what she's telling me right now is she is very concerned uh, about the situation there. Now, she said the one thing that we have not seen yet so far, and I emphasize and she emphasizes yet, is any evidence of 
transmission of positive cases inside the bubble. So far, what we've seen are positives when players and coaching staff are first coming into the bubble and tested. Right. So if you have a situation where there's actual community transmission inside the bubble, you've got a giant problem at that point. Uh, according to her, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what we need to keep an eye out for in the next few days. Cause if that happens, things could stop really quickly. Yeah. This whole thing um, could be ended, right? MLS is back. Could be MLS is no longer back. Correct. And, and that would be a real shame, but it's also reflective of what we're seeing now is as we already know, the virus is rising in a lot of cities around America, including MLS cities. And so mm -hmm. these players are arriving, they're getting checked upon entering the bubble, and they've got positive tests. And so that's reflective of, hey, lots of American cities have the virus right now. So that also is different than what's been happening in Germany, for example, where they did not have a positive test once they restarted the Bundesliga, which is right. kind of crazy when you think about that now. <sighs> I mean, and even comparing the MLS tournament to the NWSL tournament, like I've been able to watch that NWSL tournament knowing that every player that's playing basically wants to be there and wants to play because, um, as I understand it, they had the option to opt out and still get their salary, right? Whereas MLS Correct. players have been somewhat coerced, right? Because if you didn't have like a really, um, you know, hardcore medical reason, um, then you basically wouldn't get paid if you didn't go and play in this tournament. So I sort of, I'm excited to watch the games just because, you know, I'm excited to see these teams back in action. But I'm also apprehensive about seeing players out there and thinking some of these guys don't want to be here. I'd almost rather there be less star power, maybe some lesser known names, but knowing that every player there is there 100% of their own volition and they, you know, they 100% want to be there. I just wonder right now if... They changed the rules. This isn't going to happen, by the way. And said, okay, MLS players, you'll still get paid if you decide to leave this very second and go home. How many do you think would leave? I, I wonder. I, have no, I guess I don't know, but I think it could be significant. I think it would be significant, but they still could put out teams, right? I think there'd still be enough to put out like 11 and a few subs. <laughs> I mean, it's just a crazy situation. Obviously, uh, safety is the most important thing. If they can get the safety right, the actual games for this MLS tournament, you know, it's 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 a higher volume than the NWSL games. I mean, like the plan is for Wednesday night to have a double header starting at 8.30 p.m. Yeah. And then have another game at 9 a.m. Eastern the next morning uh, with NYCFC in Philly. So, like, if they can get the safety right, I think it could be fun. A lot of games. Fingers crossed. Um, let's talk NWSL, okay. by the way, and the actual soccer that's taking place. <laughs> and I want to talk about North Carolina because, you know, I was down covering their second straight NWSL championship win last fall and basically said, you know, dynasty is an okay thing to call North Carolina at this point. Yeah. And now they're three and zero in this tournament. They beat Chicago Red Stars one, nothing on Sunday and they're still a dynasty. Yeah, and they're not just 3-0 and against any old teams, right? It was right. Portland Thorns, Washington Spirit, and Chicago Red Stars, like arguably the three other best teams in the tournament. Yep. So that's, yep. Quite, that's quite a start. 
and you know, it's fun for me to watch North Carolina because you get to see Crystal Dunn playing at more of her natural position and you you remember, oh, wait, she was an MVP in this league at this right. position. Yeah. Like, she's pretty incredible. Um, and But just at every position, they're stacked. And I know Jess McDonald hasn't been healthy in this tournament so far, but it's like it doesn't matter. You put in Kristen Hamilton into the lineup. Lynn Williams has been fantastic, was terrific in the second game in particular. Um, and then they're solid across the back line. Abby Dahlkemper, Ursig. I mean, like, it's, it's like not only are they the best team in the league, they've got – not you know they're not too far away from like best eleven at most positions. <laughs> well, does this feel to me? This feels different to watching Major League Soccer because I feel like it's quite rare in MLS for us to be able to say this is far and away the best team and they've won the championship the last two years and no one else can beat them. Um, so I'm kind of enjoying this sort of reverse moment in NWSL of they're just being an undisputed best team, and it's part to me part of the excitement is seeing can anyone knock them off their perch. Right now, I don't see it happening. Um, you know, they've had some occasional losses. I feel like, you know, like if Rose Lavelle really does become the best player in the league, potentially the best player in the world, it's going to require her and her team to beat North Carolina. Right. And and I don't know. I know they played here, but like I just don't know how how close they are to that yet, even though I think Rose Lavelle has had some really fun moments in this tournament so far. It's going to make the knockout rounds of that NWSL Challenge Cup really, really exciting, right? So, yeah, as soon as uh, things are really on the line, it's going to be thrilling. Right, because once Orlando was out of the tournament, everyone was playing this group stage just for seeding. Yeah. You know, no, no one's going to be eliminated, but uh, I hope somebody can give North Carolina a challenge. I just don't feel like that's going to happen, but but we'll see. By the way, when you talk about MLS, if what happens if we see another Toronto-Seattle final? in this <laughs> in this MLS's back tournament. <laughs> It'd be like a, a double dynasty then. <laughs> um, so let's talk about English Premier League. Yeah. As we mentioned, two consecutive days of Premier League uh, quadruple headers. Um, I didn't watch all eight games entirely, but did watch quite a few of them. And, you know, things are pretty well settled now in the Premier League. We We know who's won the title. Uh, we don't know all of the the teams that are qualifying for Champions League, so that's still interesting. Um, we haven't totally decided who the relegated teams are, but I just want to ask you, who do you think are the most fun Premier League teams to watch right now? Because I don't think Liverpool is in that group, but there are some teams that are, and maybe some that are slightly unexpected. I mean, for me, it's Chelsea and Manchester United. Those are yeah. the two that I get excited when they're on TV. Manchester United suddenly just have this great setup where Bruno Fernandes has like reinvigorated them. It's given them like this talismanic creative figure. And then the front three that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has settled on of Rashford, Martial um, and Mason Greenwood to me is is absolutely thrilling. Those are three guys who can sort of make space where no space exists, right? A couple of stepovers and a quick bit of separation. Um, the Martial goal uh, this weekend is a really good example of that, right? He's just at the top of the box, uh, makes a bit of space for himself and bends it into the top corner. Uh, Greenwood had a couple of similar goals, mm-hmm. goals as well. I'm excited every time Manchester United are on TV, but they don't have any Americans. And what Chelsea have <laughs> is Christian Pulisic 
in the form of his life, playing pretty much 90 minutes every time for Frank Lampard's team. So for me, Chelsea edges it, I think, as the most exciting team because I know I'm going to get to see Christian Pulisic in full flight. Yes, I'm with you on both of those things. And I I do want to say this. I am hesitant right now to say that Man United and Chelsea are, are going to contend for the title next season because I think defensively we've both we've seen both teams be pretty terrible defensively, including in the past week Yeah, uh, at times. But they're so much fun to watch on the attacking end. And, and to see Pulisic go from someone who, you know, even before COVID hit, wasn't playing because of injuries. And you felt like are these injuries just going to be sort of a defining thing for him? And I still have concerns, but like right now that's not the case. And not only is he getting in the starting lineup, he's automatic yeah. right now for Frank Lampard. In every single game, if he's not the best player on the field, he's close to it. And yeah, and I've always wondered how um, sort of myopic we're being if we're just too focused on Pulisic and we get excited by a decent performance, but maybe no one else has noticed. I feel like suddenly the last week or two, um, the basically non-biased media are noticing <laughs> Christian Pulisic. Non-American media seem to be, even friends I've got back home are sort of contacting me and saying like, hey, this Pulisic kid's amazing. Um, so I think he's really getting the attention of everybody, not just US men's national team interested people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely fantastic to watch. Um, and I do think he put on some bulk. I don't know if that's being tr- transmitted to how he's playing on the field right now, but I do wonder if it's allowing him to potentially ride some tackles and stay up a yeah. little bit more than than in the past. Yeah, that, that feels right. We can't prove it right without weighing him, but... Um, <laughs> That feels right to me. It's not unexpected for someone to move to the Premier League and put on a little bulk. And it's also, honestly, his age, right? You do tend to fill out around that age of 21 or so. You you just get a little bit bulkier. You essentially become a man, right? That That is what happens to, to all people, but to athletes as well. Yeah, um, but I'm also excited about Man United. I, I just, it used to feel like penance to have to watch yes. them for, uh. for so many years, actually, including parts of this season. And it just seems like, not only, it seems like like Paul Pogba's having fun. And yeah. it, it's not just about getting results. I think it's just about the way they're playing. And I just want to say to United, whoever identified Bruno Fernandes, you know, thanks. And it, it felt like a classic Man United thing when they were trying to sign him of just like they would they were haggling and haggling and haggling <laughs> over the price. And in the past, that deal would then fall apart and it and it didn't happen. Someone somewhere did their job correctly this time and they managed to get him towards the end of the transfer window. And yeah, it's abs- I, can't, I can't remember the cost. I want to say it was 50 or 60 million, um, but it was absolutely worth every penny so far because I've never seen, except for maybe Erling Haaland to Borussia Dortmund, I've, I, I can't remember a, a transfer that was more like, this is exactly what was needed here. Yeah. I mean, in January, transfers don't always settle so quickly. So it's just been very impressive. Uh, all the way around there. Uh, I want to move to Germany real quick. The German soccer season, except for, I guess, the last playoff promotion game is done. And Bayern Munich won the German Cup final, not surprisingly, 4-2 against Bayern Leverkusen. Uh, Bayern Munich winning the double again. Um, and like, there's not a heck of a lot to say here, I think, from my end, uh, except Robert Lewandowski, just a machine uh, when it comes to scoring goals. But if you're Bayern Munich, 
your season, weirdly, is going to be defined by a tournament that happens in August, which is the UEFA Champions League eight-team uh, knockout tournament taking place in Lisbon. And unlike the other contenders for that title, uh, I guess RB Leipzig is is one team that uh, is going to be in a similar position. Uh, there's, you know, they're going to have to sit now for a period of time and then gather again, presumably in what, late July, early August, and, and try to win this trophy. I actually think Bayern are in a better position than Leipzig because they still have the second leg against Chelsea to play, right? True. So they have the second leg of the round of 16 game and they're 3-0 up from the first leg. Um, so I took a quick look at the schedule and it's August 7th or 8th is that game, which is more than a month from now. But I think it's a, probably a really good situation to be in to have that game where you've got a 3-0 cushion and right. Chelsea are absolutely going to come at you, right? Chelsea, are, you know, Frank Lampard is pretty gung-ho um, in your average Premier League game. I think 3-0 down, um, he's probably going to be telling Chelsea, hey, just go for it. So I think Bayern will have a nice, tough game, but with a nice cushion that they can probably survive it, even if Chelsea come at them and win, you know, 2-1, 3-1. As long as they survive that, it might be a good thing to snap them back, in, snap them back into sharpness, ready for the quarterfinals. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look pretty silly when Chelsea win four 0 Well, it'd be fun if like Pulisic just comes out guns a blazing, and, yes. and, and all that happens. Now, just to be clear here, the new guys for Chelsea will not be eligible, so Timo Werner will not be eligible, Hakim Correct, Ziyech yeah. will not be eligible. Okay, so. However, Timo Werner will not be playing for RB Leipzig. We know that in the <laughs> final eight. Um, so that'll be just, for me, like fascinating to see how Bayern goes about this. By the way, on RB Leipzig, uh, Tyler Adams posting from New Hampshire with his girlfriend and family this weekend. So he is getting some time off at home before he goes back. Uh, for the Champions League final eight. So I, I do look forward to seeing him, uh, even if RB Leipzig, I think, is going to be in a really tough position to try and, and advance there. Could be worse, though. They could be French teams, right? Because PSG and Lyon are going to have <laughs> to play in this without having played since, what, March? <laughs> That's going to be so weird. Yeah. I'm, I'm Seriously. I mean, like, and, and the whole thing in France has been bizarre, but, like, yeah, you got to remember, like, that was a big, uh, a big, you know, situation for for PSG to to get past Dortmund after after the first leg they were down, and yet we haven't seen Neymar and Mbappe and all those guys since then. So yeah, it's just surreal the whole thing. Actually, let's move on. Uh, we've got Juventus seven points ahead now in Italy in Serie A with eight games to go, both Lazio and Inter losing this weekend. I feel like saying congrats to Juventus. <laughs> but but more than that, I want to say congrats to Atalanta, which is in really good position now to qualify for the Champions League again. Obviously, they will be in that final eight tournament in August. And right now, Atalanta is only one point behind Inter, five points behind Lazio. So they like it's possible they could finish second in the league. I know uh, my co-host Taylor is a huge fan of Papu Gomez. So um, as, as much Atalanta as we can see in the Champions League next season, Taylor is 100% in favor of. <laughs> in terms of Juventus, I'm just really impressed by Paolo Dybala, who's gone from uh, being a guy who wasn't even a guaranteed starter at one point to just, just being such a reliable finisher. Um, 
Cristiano Ronaldo gets to 25 goals again, scores on a rare free kick. Um, and for as much stick as Maurizio Sarri has gotten from Juventus fans this season, they're going to win this title again. And uh, they're actually going to win it, I think, going away at this point. So uh, it looks like the only sort of title drama left, and there's actually not that much, is in Spain, where Real Madrid is four points ahead of Barca with four games to play. And I got to say this, like I, I tweeted this out earlier today about Sergio Ramos. So you know, one of the arch villains of the game <laughs> He's now converted 22 straight penalties, which is pretty incredible. And I know that he's beloved by Real Madrid fans, but I'm starting to wonder, is there a chance that Sergio Ramos is becoming, if not lovable, at least respected by people outside of Real Madrid? Well, at least for me, I respect him because I fear him. And I think that's the way Sergio Ramos would like it. I don't think he would like to be loved. I think he wants to be feared. <laughs> my, my question was whether he would become a Jimmy Connors type figure because Jimmy Connors was a villain who then became beloved later in his tennis career, especially at the U.S. Open. But um, I got a bunch of Liverpool fans respond to me just saying no, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's a no. So that's fair. Uh, yeah. Um, the other question I've got for you in Barcelona actually looked much better uh, being Villarreal than they have recently. And, and you know, Messi was terrific in this game. But there's so much polemica, as they say, uh, in inside Barcelona right now. Yeah. It's always difficult with Barcelona to know what to believe and what not to believe. Do you believe that it's a real possibility that Messi could decide to leave after next season? I mean, based on what I'm reading, yes, right? If, if I understand correctly, his contract expires at the end of, uh, what, June 2021? So the mm -hmm. end of next season, he'll be out of contract. And he's apparently not not interested in negotiating an extension. He'll be, I think, 34, 35 at that point. And it sounds like, he, essentially, he's sick of all the polemica, <laughs> sick of all the drama. And if you look back on the last four or so years of, of Barcelona, they have been making some very bad decisions, right? Spending... 100 million euros plus each time on Usman Dembele, um, Antoine Griezmann, uh, Felipe Coutinho, like essentially uh, wasting money, right? And not just not getting it right. Um, and then asking Leo Messi to solve all their problems. And he must just look back to the days when Barcelona was a fully functional team and he could just be um, the, the most impressive part of a really impressive machine as opposed to the guy that is expected to fix all the problems. So I wouldn't blame him. So it makes sense to me that maybe he might think no more of this, especially as my talents start to wane just a little bit, right? Just as I hit my mid-30s. Maybe it is better to go and uh, try something else somewhere else. I just have a hard time imagining him playing anywhere else. Same. I can't picture him in another jersey except for you blue know? and white stripes. Yeah, I, I can't see him playing anywhere else, but but who knows? It's, it's, it's definitely possible. I just, I'm going to hold off right now saying that I think he's going to leave after next season just because every, like the one time I interviewed Lionel Messi, he basically said the only other place I would play for is Newell's Old Boys. And that would be like at the very end of my career in my hometown. Um, and I get that, but because we have not seen him play anywhere else and because he got to Barcelona when he was 13 years old, it, that's for me why... 
it just for me it would be like seeing like Joe Namath play for the the Rams, you know, <laughs> like just very strange and off. And I, I think when it comes down to it, I think what's happening right now is more negotiating tactics from Messi's side than than anything. And I think we're going to see him continue with Barcelona, but. Do you think he's do you think he's negotiating for more money or negotiating for things he wants to happen at the club? It's tough because right now some of the stuff coming out of Barcelona is basically blaming Messi for, oh, you wanted control over decisions and look what that's gotten us. And I don't know how much of that is actually fair and how much he's actually been pulling the strings. Like I would wonder like does he want Xavi to be to become the manager there because Xavi just extended his contract with Al Saad this weekend and right. Not that that says too much because basically the second that that Xavi gets offered that job and feels like it's a job he wants, like I think he would get out of his contract in Qatar. But like it's just that part of it is interesting. And then you've got the election hanging over things because it's Barcelona and because there's so much infighting that um, you know not all of that Messi can control. What he can control is threatening to leave. Yeah. And, and so I think what the reason we're starting to hear this so loudly is because he's actually really trying to pressure that right now. And we'll see if he get what, gets what he wants. Yeah, so probably the reports we're seeing in the press are because he's, you know, let that be leaked out there, essentially. Right. Yeah. Because, like, I don't think, I don't think they're going to win the league. And, and so at that point, you know, they're, they're still alive in Champions League, but um, it's... It's just such a, it's Barcelona is such a weird club because even though they've continued to win trophies, like they're pretty dysfunctional <laughs> inside of that club. Things have changed so much, right? I remember the days of, of Guardiola, of that Xavi Iniesta Busquets team, of that Messi mm. at the top of his game team. And they had what first no jersey sponsor and then UNICEF as the jersey sponsor. And it just seemed like almost the perfectly run club. And it's just gone so far so far away from that in the last 10 years that it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of that too was, uh, you know, they had a presidency who you know, he got, he ended up in being prosecuted um, because of, of various things behind the scenes. So whenever I've been over there, like it, it, it seems so dysfunctional that like it makes you really appreciate what they had when Guardiola was there yeah. because I don't think that's ever going to be repeated, but I think it's about time to get to our interview with Jordan Gardner. Thanks so much for joining me, Daryl. Of course. Anytime Grant. I enjoyed it. Our guest now is Jordan Gardner, an American who has been the chairman of the board and co-owner of FC Helsingor in Denmark since early 2019 this weekend, his club clinched promotion to the Danish top flight for next season. Jordan, congratulations, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, great. Th thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's been a kind of whirlwind 24 hours, lots of champagne, lots of excitement. Um, you know, obviously bummed we couldn't be over in Denmark to celebrate in person with the craziness of COVID, but uh, nonetheless, it's just been amazing. And so really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I mean, where are you right now? And, and how did you end up celebrating promotion where you were? Yeah, I've been uh, kind of hunkered down here in San Francisco where I live uh, since February. Um, before then, I was heading to Europe, mostly Denmark, at least one week a month, mo sometimes two weeks a month, whether it was in Denmark managing the club or speaking at conferences or doing networking. 
Um, so I've been hunkered down here and it's been lots of, uh, getting up at five o'clock in the morning, watching the games, streaming on my computer. We had a zoom watch party yesterday with our investor group here that are all Americans. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's, um, doing the best we can with the situation. I think I told you before this, we've had six games in, in 19 days. So it's been a real whirlwind for us, uh, with so much at stake. And so it's, uh, obviously worked out in the end and we're really excited. So Take me through this like emotion itself toward the end of the game, because it was pretty hairy in terms of what the stakes were and how things played out. Yeah, I mean, so basically we kind of came down the stretch with the last four or five games. We, we had a six point lead with six games remaining before COVID hit. And then they comp- compressed the schedule. And what happened is the team in second place, a, a club called Arhus Freemid, which is out in the western part of Denmark, they basically won every game down the stretch by an average of four to five goals. So they put a lot of pressure on us. And we struggled a little bit right after COVID with some injuries and guys not being fit. And we came down to the last match of the season where we had to go on the road and play a really big, strong physical team, um, a good team, and get a result, either a win or a draw to advance. And uh, the game was nil-nil up until the 91st minute, and they had a corner kick. The ball bounced around. Their guy smashed it off the post. Then our goalkeeper came up big with two huge saves. Um, and so we're just kind of like, you know, you know, just, I don't even know what to say. The emotions were at that point because there's so much riding on it. Only one team out of 24 in our division gets promoted this year. And so, you know, beyond the, the monetary, um, you know, differences between the television revenue and all that kind of stuff, just it's 15 months of work coming down to two inches on the post. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we could spend a whole podcast talking about promotion relegation. And there's so much we've learned about that going through both a relegation and a promotion. But, um, you know, when you're on the right side of it, there is absolutely nothing like that feeling. It's such it's validation for everything you've done for almost over a year on and off the field. It's like you've made it. And um, it's really rewarding. It would have been an out of body experience for me if I was in your your position. I'm sure it was in a way for you guys. Um, you would come on my podcast back in January 2019, right as you were about to buy the club. And you talked about the choice to buy a team in Europe as opposed to a more expensive MLS or or even USL franchise. And you said you wanted to bring young, promising Americans to your club and give them a chance to develop in Europe. And I'm just sort of hoping in this conversation to have you tell your story of how things have gone since that podcast, since you took over there and how what has happened has maybe fit in in some cases maybe not fit exactly with what you were thinking coming into it. Yeah, I mean, so much has happened. I don't even know where to begin on so many different fronts. And look, I'm I'm a pretty straightforward guy, so I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's definitely things that we thought going in that turned out very differently. Um, specifically, the American player model, um, which is something that we still are very focused on. Um, you know, it turned out a little bit different. You know, we had basically kind of a mini combine in Denmark uh, last summer. Uh, We had a kind of a wide range of young Americans we brought over. Some kids were right out of MLS academies, 18, 19. We had some current Division I college players. We had some kids that were a little bit more experienced. Um, Out of about 20 kids, we signed three of them. Um, And we had them on the roster for about four months. And, you know, it was just it was a difficult adjustment for, for them. It wasn't necessarily cultural. But, you know, the level of play in Europe is high, higher than I expected. I think higher than most Americans realize, even in the lower divisions in a place like Scandinavia, the technical ability of some of the players um, is just, it's its much higher than on the average American player that we run into in this level. And so, um, you know, some of those players, it for whatever reason, it didn't work out. I mean, the good news is we were, you know, one of those players that we brought over, he went back to MLS and he's at a, a FC Cincinnati. 
um, two of the other guys are in USL. So, I mean, these are still quality players and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so after that experience, we kind of figured, look, we need to maybe take a little bit of a different approach, maybe players that have a little bit more experience as being professionals um, to bring over. So we first said, look, let's bring over an experienced, maybe older professional that can kind of mentor the young Americans. And so we brought over a guy named Chris Cortez, who was the USL leading scorer. He scored, I think, 20-something goals two years ago in USL. He had been playing in Thailand, um, kind of a guy that had been on the fringes of MLS for a long time. And um, he turned out to be a really big signing for us. He came up with two huge goals for us in the spring season. And, you know, we had this whole plan to kind of use him as a mentor to bring over the next next batch of American players in the spring and then COVID hit. And so uh, obviously we can't bring Americans over now. It's not, you know, the borders are closed. And so we're kind of in a holding pattern right now. I think the good news with the promotion is it kind of really opens doors for us in terms of the quality of the player that we can bring over. Um, and then the other thing, we're having a lot of discussions about really good strategic partnerships. We've had some discussions with MLS clubs, with some USL clubs, with non-affiliated academies in terms of, you know, really giving them a pathway to some of their players in Europe. And so I think that's something that it's just going to take time. Um, an American player model in Europe, it's not like we're going to bring a player over and all of a sudden he's going to be Christian Pulisic in six months. I think some people have unrealistic expectations. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really optimistic about that model, assuming COVID things get taken care of. Um, on a similar note, we, we brought over a couple young players from other markets that have had a lot of success. We brought over two youth national team players from New Zealand, and I'm very well connected in that market. And those two players uh, started all our games down the stretch. I think one or both of them within the next 12 to 18 months are going to move on to bigger clubs and get sold. Um, so quality young players, and we've signed a handful of youth national team players from Denmark and Sweden. You know, as COVID hit over the spring, we realized we really needed to focus more on the kind of domestic EU market for players because we just we didn't have any other choice. And so we've been really kind of pleased with the young talent pool we have. It just it hasn't entirely panned out quite yet with the American pool yet, but we still are very optimistic, and we still have plenty of time to make that work. So. Um, you know, from that perspective, it's been really, you know, hit and miss and, you know, mostly positive from our perspective. Um, beyond that, we can spend three hours talking about just the experiencing of owning a club in Europe, every, everything we've dealt with, just the social and cultural differences, uh, going through a relegation basically right after we bought a club and what, what the culture was like at the club. Cause you know, we, it's so interesting is being an American, not having gone through a, a promotion or relegation. Everyone just talks about promotion, right? It's exciting. Everyone's so happy and there's euphoria the, it's almost like the yin and the yang with relegation. It's so much negativity. And so we got to this club and we're like, oh, my God, no one wants to be here. The players don't want to be here. The staff doesn't want to be here. The the, the leadership, the ownership has been running the club in a really poor manner. You, you know, you buy a failing business. And so for us, it was really important to, to spend the first six months. And I spent a lot of time on the ground bringing in, you know, a new culture and new staff. So we brought in a new coach, you know, about an 80 percent new players, a uh, new sporting director, um, obviously the way we manage it from the top was totally changing. And so for that, it took a lot of time, but it's really rewarding to see that that culture change really paid off. Cause without that, this club doesn't, this, this club doesn't get promoted. The other team that we went down with when we got relegated last season, they finished mid table in the second division this year. So I think without drastic changes and new, you know, kind of American style leadership, this club does not even come close to getting promoted. So at first you had hired Omid Namazi, who had mm-hmm. been former U20 U.S. national team assistant um, and had worked in Iran, who worked in various places. And at a certain point, he was no longer the coach. Like what happened there? And then how did was that sort of sudden for you? And then how did you adjust? 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, look, I think Omid was a really, really good hire for us at the beginning. He gave us a lot of credibility in terms of recruitment when we first bought the club. And look, I think he did as best he could to try to keep the team up when we bought it. I mean, there was, I don't remember exactly how many games, there was something like six games left. We knew there was a very high likelihood the club was going to get relegated. Um, look, it was, it was on a personal level, it was tough for Omid. His wife is in Iran and we were trying to get her a work permit to, or a, you know, a visa to get into Denmark and that didn't work out. Um, look, he's a really talented coach and he had lots of opportunities and, uh, the opportunity with the dynamo we knew was kind of in the background the whole time. And so we knew he probably was going to leave eventually. Um, it was a little bit sudden for us, but at the end of the day, it's no different than when players move on. Like, look, we know who we are. We're not Barcelona. So when the opportunity came that he could move and, you know, he's very close with tab and what they're trying to build in Houston is really exciting. And so he moved on and, um, we were per- we were very happy for him, and we had about two and a half months uh, in the summer to find a new coach. And for us, that was a good opportunity to kind of reevaluate uh, what kind of coach did we want because we had gotten a lot of negative feedback bringing in an American coach. Again, something else we could talk about for a while, and that not Omid personally, but it was just um, there was a lot of resistance to us as American owners, American coaches, even American players, and so. We felt maybe it would be easier in the short term to bring in a domestic coach that had more experience with the mar- with the with the Danish football market, uh, especially with a club that had just gotten relegated, where there was a lot of pressure for us to get back promoted. We wanted we wanted someone who knew the ins and outs of Danish football, and no offense to Mead, but like obviously he wasn't that guy. And so we brought in a guy named Morten Eskesen. He was an assistant coach with Randers, which is one of the big clubs in the Superliga, and he he's done a fantastic job. I, I really like him because he has a background not just in football, but he has a background in the real business world in human resources. Sources and he's worked. He he knows how to manage people, and I'm a firm believer when it comes to uh, putting together these football clubs. It's like yes, of course, talent wins, and spending the most money does win more often than not. But like, there's so much that goes into the motivation and the psychological component of it, and are the players comfortable, and how do you motivate men? I mean, we saw it again when we bought this club, where the players there were there were very talented players, but they just weren't motivated psychologically, and so I think. This game of football, it's such a – everything's at the margins like we talked about. The ball hits the post and the margins are that much. And so I wanted a coach who really could motivate the players, and he did a really outstanding job for us. You talked about sort of American-style management in terms of what you were hoping to bring to the club. And I'm wondering, what exactly is that? Yeah, so the club we bought, it's basically was being run by an association, which is Denmark's version of a nonprofit, which you do see quite a few European football clubs being run. So – no offense to him, but the CEO of the club and the, the chairman of the club was a police chief. I mean, that guy, you know, we're talking about a club that was in the Danish Super League of the year before we bought it with, you know, millions of dollars in revenue. So, there, you know, the prof- the prof- professionalization of the club didn't exist. Um, it was just really kind of being run hand to mouth and they weren't maximizing any sorts of revenue. They weren't being sophisticated in any sort of way, whether it was player recruitment. They had a new stadium. One of the, the reasons that we were attracted to this club was there was a new stadium opening about four months after we bought it. They hadn't sold stadium naming rights. They hadn't pre-sold any VIP areas. Like they hadn't done any of the back end work when it comes to commercializing the stadium. And so for us, look, I mean, it's not rocket science. You come in, you treat it like a professional business. You, you know, that the club, they were spending money like candy. And it was just like the money going out the door when we first bought the club was just incredible. And so, you know, we had to sit down and really, you know, tighten the ropes and and professionalize the club and run it like a business. Cause at the end of the day, like I talk about this a lot, like, you know, you don't get into football to become a billionaire. You shouldn't because like there's better ways to spend your money. But like it's also it has to be a business. And that's something we constantly battle with even our own staff and the, the fans about is like, look, like if you guys want this club to be here in the next 20 years, we need to run it like a self-sufficient business. The club was basically no one knew it was on the verge of bankruptcy when we bought it. 
And so there's been a lot of diff- a lot of my difficulties is coming in and being the bad guy and telling everyone, no, we can't do that. We had to have a really difficult decision discussion about our academy and the academy was spending way too much money for a club of its size, too much staff. Um, it just was ridiculous the amount of money it was spending. And so we're like, look, this club just got relegated. Our revenues are dropping 75%. We have to make difficult decisions and changes. And so, you know, I think at bigger clubs, the quote American model means certainly much more commercialization and sophistication when it comes to game day and stadiums and tickets and sponsorship. And that all applies to us. But for us, it's just simply like just running it as a professional business, really, which wasn't happening and doesn't happen at a shocking number of clubs. And in part of your strategy, right, is to develop players and sell them on. Is that still the case? Absolutely. I mean, we uh, we had a lot of success already. I mean, even last summer, we sold one of our players. He wasn't a foreign player. He was a domestic Danish player. We sold a guy named Patrick Olsen. Uh, he's actually a guy who played for Inter when he was younger. Um, we sold him for 500,000 Danish, which is a, a little bit under 100,000 U.S. to Alborg in the Superliga. And, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of money uh, for us at, at the start. You know, obviously with COVID now, it throws the player transfer market definitely into flux. I mean, we were anticipating to probably sell at least one player this summer, uh, potentially one of our younger, talented players. Um, that's probably going to get pushed back at least six to 12 months. So that's still very much a model. It has to be a model for any club of our size. And I think, you know, there's some good players coming out of our domestic academy. We continue to look to bring the Americans and the foreign young players in. So, you know, clearly for us, um, our priority this past season was getting promoted. We had to. We had to play this balancing card between we are still very committed to playing young players and selling them and getting promoted. And that tipping point was definitely more towards winning games. So going into the next season, I think we can definitely probably spend a little bit more of a focus on developing our young players to make them sellable once COVID passes. And you mentioned there had been some resistance from fans of the team. Uh how did that manifest itself? How have you dealt with it? Where where are they now? I presume they're happy to get promoted. Yeah, I think uh, it's funny. One of the interviews, I don't know if it was your interview before I bought the club, they asked, like, what do the local individuals think about the club? And I was, and I went back and read the articles and I'm like, oh, everyone loves us. This is great. And like before we bought the club, that was the case. And I, I spent a lot of time on the ground. You know, I have some ownership stakes in other European football clubs, small minority stakes. And I kind of tried to learn from some of those experiences about you know, the ways they handled their supporter groups and how the local communities and how they engaged. Were they absentee owners? Were they not? And I tried to really do things differently. And in the end, it didn't really matter. I think, um, you know, I had to come in and make really difficult decisions for the club and the locals, whether that's local or minority investors from the local groups or sponsors or fans, and they didn't like it. I mean, on one hand, we we put a, a very strong squad together and spent a good amount of money for a club of our size. And so that I, I think people were pleased that we put a competitive product on the field. But, you know, we definitely have a very direct American brash way of doing business. Like, look, if this doesn't work, I'm going to change it. Right. This club, the, the day we got relegated. Uh, I came out and said, like, look, things have to change. Things have to cl- change at this club from a variety of angles. And a lot of the, the Danes locally didn't really understand it. They just they, it did, they couldn't wrap their head around that. And so I think that cultural difference definitely rubs some people the wrong way. Um, I brought over an American CEO, a guy named Jim Kirks, who's worked for me for a long time. And he he's kind of done a better job maybe than I have in terms of learning the language and bridging the cultural gap a little bit and cultivating those relationships. But at the end of the day, we're foreigners in a foreign country, and particularly this market that we're in, even though it's close to Copenhagen, it's a very older demographic. It's more of a Midwestern um, community, and they're definitely very resistant to change. And so us coming in, and literally from the day we bought the club, we're changing everything about it because it wasn't working. Um, it's been a pretty big adjustment period. So 
you know, long story short, look, everyone's happy about the promotion and all that, but I don't think there's a whole whole lot of love for our ownership group, unfortunately, and that's just the way it goes. Um, being a foreign group, I don't. I, they didn't like us bringing in an, a foreign coach, Omid. They didn't really like all the foreign players we brought in, and so that's just. I think that's the reality of being a foreign ownership group in Europe. You just have to navigate that as best you can. And so, what other types of things have happened uh, that were, you know, pretty major since you bought the club that? Uh, either you anticipated or maybe didn't anticipate? I think we've, there's a couple different things I would say. I mean, COVID, number one, two, and three, I think that's obviously thrown everything into flux. I mean, being a small club of ours, you know, luckily Denmark has not been hit particularly hard with COVID. I was just telling my wife that I think Denmark has about 12,000 cases total in the country. And obviously we're hearing Florida has 12, is getting 11 or 12,000 cases a day. So fortunately the country has been spared. We haven't had any players or staff getting infected. Uh, they've enabled recently up to 500 fans at each game, which is great for our atmosphere. It doesn't really help us commercially because that's really just season ticket holders and sponsors and players, basically. So, you know, I think it puts us somewhat optimistic in terms of the fall getting potentially back to full stadiums, it, it, potentially. Um, but beyond COVID, uh, you know, there's been a couple things. Our stadium, the stadium that was built by the commune, definitely the, the city of Helsinger, was much more problematic than we expected. There were issues with the construction, the contractor went bankrupt. I mean, none of these are our personal issues. We don't own the stadium, but it created some challenges for us. Uh, We've had difficulties commercializing the stadium because of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, beyond that, I think the number one thing that's been super interesting is just the, the, the cultural difference of Europe and Denmark between us in terms of the way they look at the world, you know? In both from a business perspective and even a sport perspective, you know, the socialist model, and we can spend an hour talking about politics it's like everyone's equal everyone's the same no one's better than the other so like when 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 you have a player that is maybe very creative a goal scorer that's flashy that's brash the danes really try to kind of push that down and they discourage that kind of behavior right and so that's why you go to a game in denmark and it looks like it's ping pong because it's you know it's 11 six foot two danish dudes passing the ball in circles and they're really good and technical but you don't see that like amazing creative cristiano ronaldo type player or the pulisic type athleticism because the culture doesn't encourage that and so obviously we bring foreign players in and they you know some of these americans are incredibly athletic and they have skills and speed and how do you integrate those two cultural differences and where the danes definitely have this kind of insular culture where you know there's a there's a danish way of doing things and if you don't do it that way um it's definitely a little bit discouraged and so managing that cultural differences has definitely been a challenge on and off the field i mean off the field look there's i've i've never figured out a country that had so many holidays in my life i mean every week there's a danish holiday and you know the guys are leaving at 2 30 i mean look no one's gonna cry for us about that but it's you know it's hard running a business when it's so focused on the quality of life is incredibly high in denmark i mean people that you know their number one two three and four priority is family and it's not work and you know, we're a football club so it's a little bit different we have people uh, that are really passionate about the club but at the same time, it's been a huge adjustment for us. And that's why I talk about this a lot publicly. Like I can't imagine American group going in and buying a hundred million euro club in France, right? Like, you know, same kind of thing is like not understanding those cultural differences when it comes to huge, the huge stakes. And not to say what we're doing is small stakes, but it's relatively small in the scheme of Europe. It's like, we've learned these things on the fly. It just so happens that the zeros at the end of our PNL are just less than other big clubs. So it's been I cannot stress enough how enlightening an experience has been, positive and negative, and that I can't believe that some groups, American in particular, go into Europe without having some form of that experience. Because otherwise, you're just you might as well just light money and put it in a trash can because you just you just you're going to be miserable and lose money, which is a lot of group, which is a lot of times what happens. 
It does make me wonder, you're talking about the, the Danish soccer culture, how they produce the Louder Brothers if they're not too into creativity. I mean, I think, look, they're definitely outliers, right? I mean, you got Christian Eriksen. I mean, they per- I mean, the Danish national team is really – the quality of play in Denmark, this is not to disparage the quality of play and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It was funny. Uh, I got a lot of shit from some of my Danish employees and staff a couple months ago when Denmark's U-17s played – U- the U.S. U-17s in a friendly, and Denmark smoked us. It was like five or six to one. And, I mean, from my experience, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, we're making great strides in the U.S., and that's a separate podcast as well. But um, – you know, it's it's a culture that is so immersed in the sport, maybe not as much as the UK or some of Spain, but like it's so immersed in the sport and they have a very, very uh, technical way of looking at the game. And for the most part, I mean, I'm generalizing, right? They do produce some players. And certainly the interesting thing about Denmark is the top young players are moving abroad where 10 years ago, all the top players in Denmark were playing for FC Copenhagen and Bromby. Now they're playing for Inter and Ajax. And so I think that is changing the culture a little bit. Um but it's uh, it's a really, really interesting footballing culture that's a little bit off the radar, right? It's not one of these huge European leagues that everyone thinks of. But on the same time, it's the biggest and best league in Scandinavia. It's on the European calendar, so it's very integrated in some of these other leagues. And everyone looks at Belgium and Holland, and obviously those countries do produce very, very good footballers. But like Denmark really holds its own, and that's why you see in the World Cup, they typically do quite well in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, so what has your day-to-day been like? Like how much time have you devoted over – the last year and a half to to this club? I've been on the ground in Denmark probably back and forth 20 to 25 times. Um, I realized very quickly from some of my other experiences in European football that the absentee ownership thing doesn't work. A, the absentee ownership thing doesn't work. And B, for me, whether it's transitioning this club to bigger and better things down the road or being that American owner, executive chairman, CEO of a big club, like I needed that experience being on the ground. And I'm, I'm a hands-on guy. I'm an entrepreneurial guy. And I, this wasn't a project where it's like, okay, here's a check. Someone else just run it for us. And I felt it was really, really important to have a lot of time on the ground. So, um, you know, one to two weeks a month uh, since March of 2019, pre-COVID, I was in Denmark. It, over the last, I would say, six months, it's transitioned to more of my time over there is spent just doing business development, whether it's speaking at conferences uh, networking with other clubs or other investors, doing other entrepreneurial things, but always spending at least one one week a month in Denmark. And then I'm on the phone, conference calls every single day in Denmark. First thing when I wake up, wake up here with the with the time difference, so one to two hours a day on conference calls with our American CEO. Um, so it's it's very uh, labor intensive, obviously, but it's something that uh, is really rewarding because yeah, you can't you can't replicate this kind of experience. You can't, you know, we're dealing with the licensing process for our division up and we're dealing with payroll issues and we're dealing with, you know, vacation issues, like all these little things that are not sexy and that aren't for work permit issues, right. And foreign player restrictions. And we can talk about them. You can talk about them on a piece of paper, but until you've actually lived through it, it's, you just, you just don't know. I mean, we, we talk about the next club, whenever that is hopefully a bigger club, like, okay, we got to, if we're going to change the culture, we really have to do things quickly and be decisive. But like, let's say we buy that team in France. Well, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to fire employees in France. So, like, maybe you should probably know that before you buy a club or what what is the footballing culture in that country. And so I think without being on the ground, that was the other thing that was kind of interesting is having this kind of American-centric view. You kind of – I've spent a lot of time traveling for pleasure and for work. And you kind of just assume the culture in football is not that dissimilar in Belgium and Holland and Denmark and Sweden. But, like, it's so very different. Like, we're right on the border across the channel from Helsingborg in Sweden, which is a pretty big club in Sweden. My assumption was like everyone's dialed in. There's lots of, you know, people are talking about Swedish football and 
no, like not at all. Like, no, like there's like a hard line there. Yeah, people go back and forth to buy beer and and you know do all that kind of stuff. But the cult, the footballing culture in each of these countries is very insular. So if you're going to go into a country, you really, really need to know the ins and outs and have people you know and trust in that market before you do that. And I think that's a mistake that some Americans make. So now that you are going to be in the top flight next season, how does that change things in terms of you know, money incoming to, to the club? How does it change things for how you approach this off, you know, this off season before the season starts? I mean, the main difference is there's a, a very big jump in television revenue. So there's a new television deal in Denmark for all the divisions. And that's one of the reasons there was only one team that got promoted from our division. They were restructuring all the different divisions. Um, so, you know, we'll get more television revenue. Um, you know, beyond that, everything's in flux with COVID. Um, you know, we're Helsingør as a city is in a very tourist-focused area. Um, a lot of tourists from other parts of Denmark, from Sweden, and so as you can imagine, with the borders being closed for quite some time now, it's been very difficult. A lot of our sponsors and corporate partners. Um, so we don't know what that's going to look like, what that landscape's going to look like. You know, does our player budget projections have to kind of come down to to kind of compensate for that? What exactly that's going to look like, but. Clearly, from the valuation of our club and the big, we get to be back on national television in Denmark, the television revenue, it's all huge jumps in the visibility of this club. And so um, it's kind of an open question at this point. You know, are the next division, the season doesn't start till September 1st. So we think between now and then, we'll hopefully have some more clarity as to what the financial model looks like a little bit. But at the end of the day, we're kind of at mercy of is there another wave of COVID in Denmark? Do things continue to get better? Do the borders open up? Do the businesses continue to, to to kind of recover? And so we just don't know yet. And is there more to your goal for next season than stay up? Is, or is that the main thing? Yeah, I mean, I think next season, the goal has always been to be a self-sufficient business. I mean, we've invested pretty heavily in the club in our current division where there was little to no television revenue. And so we want a self-sufficient model where we can not have to constantly dump money into the club and have a professionalized, well-run club that we can you know, really kind of chug along and sell some players and increase the, you know, the valuation of our club and do things the right way. And so, yeah, I think for us, it's about being a stable club. That's really what we want to be because this club, <laughs> this club has gotten promoted and relegated up and down the last like four to five years constantly. And that's just like, that's not viable for a club in the, you know, moving forward. So it's, I think really what we're going for is stability at this point. And what's sort of like the, the medium to long-term strategy? Like, are, are you wanting to, to sell this club for a higher price before too long? Is, is it something you want to keep long-term? Are you looking at potentially buying other clubs in Europe? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, for us, um, it's always good, I think, to have some form of an entry-level club into Europe. That's what I like about this club. It has the right recipe to be an entry-level for good young players, wherever they may be, hopefully American, um, to get into Europe. So I think the club has serves a purpose. Um, of course, if the time is right and it makes sense for us financially, we will definitely look to exit from the club. We're not, this isn't a charity at the end of the day. We're doing, we're trying to do everything the right way, but at the end of the day, our investors would like a return. And so would I, of course, with the amount of time and energy we put into it. Um, so, you know, it's still kind of an open question. Obviously it's only been 15 months. I think from a, from a personal perspective, this project that I've been involved with has create a lot of visibility on what I'm doing, just in the fact that it's so unique. Um, there's just very few Americans who are on the ground actually doing things. Um, so there's been a lot of discussions uh, with different groups, whether they're American or not, that are looking to do a lot of different things, whether they're looking to replicate the city football group model, whether they're looking to kind of have a fun portfolio of multiple clubs, whether it's an American group that's looking to buy a big club in the Premier League and looking for you know people to partner with them who understand what the landscape is like in Europe. And so 
there's a lot of different discussions happening right now. Some have been kind of on hold with COVID. Some are accelerating because of COVID because people see opportunities. So the good news with Helsinger is it's it's self-sufficient now. The first, I would say, eight to 10 months, it took a lot of time and energy. But now it's kind of a well-oiled machine. I think it's in a good place, especially obviously getting promoted. And so it's looking towards the future. I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but I know there's there's a lot of demand for an interest in what's going on in Europe. And there's just, there's just frankly, very few people who understand it. Um, so we'll see. I mean, right now, it certainly seems like there's Americans who are buying clubs in Europe and they're buying them of different sizes, right? So like you're, you have the Americans who, who own Liverpool and then you've got the ones buying clubs in France, like Bordeaux. Um, and then you're at a, at, at a smaller number, but you know, you're doing very much doing your thing over there. Like um, overall, when you look at the landscape, are there more Americans all the time interested in buying European soccer clubs or, or sort of where are we in that trend? I think COVID has accelerated that trend. You have a lot of, um, I would say, opportunistic Americans who are looking for deals. That's not to say they understand the landscape at all, because I think, look, I, I think there are groups and Liverpool is one of them, that the Fenway group that do a fantastic job. Uh, but there's... Uh, for every one of those, there's eight to 10 American groups that come into Europe and I have no idea what they're doing. I mean, example was the article in the New York Times the other day of Rocco Camiso buying into Fiorentina and not understanding or doing any due diligence whatsoever to understand there were like under the table contracts signed with agents and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Like when I read, he basically bought the club in two weeks and did no due diligence. Like, I mean, of course that's going to happen. Now he has enough money where he can do whatever he wants, but I think this new wave of American investors is much more sophisticated and they're trying to treat it like a business. It's not just a vanity project. So I do think there's a couple groups. There's a group that I think just got into Dundee in Scotland and got them promoted. Um, there's some kind of under the radar groups that are definitely being more sophisticated, but some of these other groups are coming in and, uh, you know, the Bordeaux group, American group, that did not end well for that group. So I think it's... Um, you know, my hope, my goal at the end of the day is like, I, look, whether I'm involved in any of these projects or not, like I would just love to get on the phone with some of these guys before they pull the trigger and be like, look, like here's my experience over there. Just like take that with a grain of salt and know what you're getting yourself into. Because, um, you know, if you want to make it a real business, it takes a lot of work and time and energy. And some of these groups don't care about that. But I do think that from a general trend perspective, we're seeing, look, the price point in MLS now is 300 plus million. USL is 10 to 15 million. Like you can go into the second division in Spain or France and get a team for 10 to 15 million and get 10 million in TV money. And if you're smart and savvy and do a good job, you can get it promoted and all of a sudden it's worth 75 million. And so for those more entrepreneurial, sophisticated investors who have more risk tolerance, like that's kind of where I fit in. It's super interesting and you can get in. Obviously, look, I totally get the American model. It makes sense. We went through a relegation and I totally understand why that's so stressful, right? Like we're, we're budgeting towards next year. Are we going to spend enough that we don't have to worry about relegation? Like, of course, you always have to worry about relegation. And so I understand why the model is in place, but I do think there is a trend towards more sophistication and more uh, interest in the European models that, you know, at the end of the day, they offer more upside. Of course, they offer more downside, too. But it's kind of this risk assessment. So when you say you speak at conferences, what comes up? What do you talk about? Is it a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here? Some, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of interest in Europe about the American market, as I'm sure you're aware of. I think a lot of people are interested in MLS and the American models. I think they're very interested in like this American way of doing things and how um, American investors like myself can come in and really bring the commercial aspect of the game 
like bring that level up in Europe, which is still a challenge. I mean, I tell people in Denmark, like, they're like, oh, like, how's your season ticket base? And how's your spot? Like, I'm like, look, it's pretty straightforward in Denmark. If the weather's good and we're winning games, people come. If it's not, they don't come. And we have very little season ticket base because they don't buy tickets in advance, kind of similar to the Latino demographics in the United States. Um, so, you know, it's a battle in that respect. But I think they're they're just 15 years behind us when it comes to the business and the commercialization side of the sport outside of maybe the top four or five clubs in Tottenham with a new stadium. Like you go to some of these clubs and it just would blow your mind, the lack of sophistication, the lack of scouting infrastructure, the lack of commercial infrastructure. Um, So I think they're really keen to understand how they can um, grow those areas. Um, They say that whether they actually want to is another story, but um, though a lot of those conversations are about that. Um, So yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, do you have any interest in American soccer clubs or do you want to focus mostly on Europe? I would like to come back at some point and help and be a part of the growth of American soccer. I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, especially with the World Cup coming up, I, you know, again, we could spend a separate podcast about all the challenges we have as soccer in this country with the Federation and all that kind of stuff. And look, I know a lot of people in MLS. and I think there's a lot of clubs that do a good job and there's some clubs in some markets that don't. And that's really frustrating to see, Um, you know, from an investment perspective, I personally, just my personal opinion, do not think it makes sense here and now. I think that the clubs that got into USL and MLS five, 10, 15 years ago, great. Where we're sitting today, they're going to need huge growth on the television media side. And uh, I just don't see it. Uh, Certainly with COVID as well, I just don't see it yet. I understand a lot of American investors are in the long game for the next 25 or 30 years. And that's great for them. But, um, you know, I'm dialed in enough in the global sense of sport where I can say, look, you can go to lower divisions in some of these bigger countries and get more TV money than MLS for a fraction of the cost. And so, um, you know, I'm still very much um, a believer that, you know, we're we're just at the very beginning stages of the growth of, of soccer in this country. And I do think sometimes it's difficult for people to separate out MLS from the growth of soccer in this country, which is the growth of the English Premier League and Bundesliga and American players going abroad and League MX, right? I'm a big proponent. I worked for a hot minute at Hugo TV with the guys from Relevant. And so I'm a big proponent of the growth of uh, you know the Mexican league in the U.S. And so I think there's just massive growth potential in the sport. The question is, is it just MLS? Is it just USL? Are there other areas for growth? Can they capture some of that growth? And I think in some ways they do a good job. In other ways, there's some room to improve. So we'll see. Uh, it's probably not on the horizon today or tomorrow, but you know I know a lot of the owners in MLS and I have a lot of respect for many of them. So if I asked you in five years, where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? What would you say? Uh, I want to be an owner or a chairman CEO of a top five club in Europe. I, uh, you know, I, I met, uh, so there's an American chairman at Chelsea. I don't know if you know him, Bruce, uh, Bruce Buck. Yeah, I met Bruce, a really interesting guy. And that kind of got the light bulb. And I was, I just hadn't known of an American. I mean, obviously there's American ownership, the Glazers on Manchester United, but I mean, I'm not a billionaire by any stretch, but I, when I met him, I was like, look, and he's obviously a little bit of an older guy. And I was like, look, like no offense to him and Chelsea, but like, some of these bigger clubs, they need an infusion of younger new ideas. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, they really could use people looking at the game in kind of this new, um, new way, new sophistication. And I think it's important. And that's one of my complaints with MLS sometimes is that it's a little bit of an old boys network. I've said this publicly too, in terms of management, ownership, executives. And so, um, you know, for me, I think being at a big club in Europe, being able to kind of bring in this kind of American sensibility, bringing in like a younger perspective as well, bringing in a perspective of having run clubs even on a smaller scale, I think is something that's really interesting and unique. And there's so many things I see 
firsthand about the game, whether it's, you know, player recruitment or dealing with agents or like the sketchiness, the same stuff you read. I just like, I just shake my head at that. And hopefully my hope is down the road, I can be a part of kind of a new way of looking at the game and trying to professionalize and modernize it. And, you know, just, again, I come from a business background, so running things in an efficient way. And it just so happens to be a sport that I'm passionate about, but um, look at it in a really different way than is currently being done. Well, Jordan Gardner, congratulations on promotion with FC Helsingor in Denmark. Good luck next season. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Grant. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Jordan Gardner as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grobe of The Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.